Hi, this is Dr. Adrian Lopristi. Join us on FX Medicine next week, where we'll be talking to Professor Jerome Saris about psychedelics for mental health. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app and follow us on social media to make sure you never miss an episode. Welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse, and with us today is Dr. Veronique Cheche, researcher and lecturer of nutritional science at the University of Queensland. She's here to discuss the research around fasting, longevity and optimal metabolic health. Welcome to FX Medicine, Veronique. Uh, good morning, Michelle. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for being here. So, I want to start off our conversation today. It seems there are a lot of diet and lifestyle-based health trends these days that are hugely popular, things like the paleo diet, barefoot running, earthing. But one of the ones that I've found the most convincing and most intriguing kind of from an evolutionary nutritional perspective is that of short-term intermittent fasting. Veronique, can you start us off by talking through what you define as fasting? Like what do we mean when we say the word fasting? Yes, very good question because it's important when we talk about health benefits uh, expected or uh, targeted, we we need to put that in the framework of what pattern of fasting we're talking about and because there is a thin line between fasting practices and then uh, eating disorders, if you, mm. if you see as well, yeah? So um, fasting, as you mentioned in your introduction, is not new. It's been... Um, probably something that the human physiology has practiced uh, because of the way the food supply was uh, having ups and downs throughout the year, for example, where we go through uh, periods of you know abundance uh, food supply and then periods where it was a little bit less and mm. sometimes much, much less. So that forced um, pattern of abundance or what we would call feasting and fasting, yeah. that, that forced pattern has been there throughout all humankind up until nowadays where we have 100% of abundance all year round. So um, now also from from a religious point of view, so as you know, there is a number of practices as well there, which mm-hmm. um uh, with different pattern, with different purposes, and often, if you, uh, I had an interest in looking at, you know, where did this all originate? It's also more from a uh, mental training point of view because it's mm. about uh, being able to control one's, uh, you know, urge to eat, to overeat or to eat. Anyway, so because of that, there's been these observations. So in certain population where the fasting is a regular religious practice, that they they seem to be less. Um, chronic disease, for example, really? or maybe um, at the end of the the. So you would recall there was this study, the Geosphere study, where, where people were under a big um, uh, a big bubble, a glass bubble, mm-hmm. where they lived for um, eighteen months, where just self, you know, looking at uh, self-sustainability, so. Uh, oh. Growing their own food and etc. Now, out of that, they had issues uh, in in the sustainability aspect of it. So, they were actually deprived of uh, food or of the normal supply that one would need. And so, at the end of it, they had lost a fair bit of weight, but mm. also had a number. And we're not talking people who necessarily needed to lose weight, right? So, it mm. it was not for the purpose of weight loss, but there were metabolic benefits of of um, this period of time. And so that was really the start of, of saying, okay, what's happening during fasting here? I mean, is it just a matter of losing weight? And then, of course, as we know, losing weight induces so many metabolic benefits um, yeah, by itself, right. right? And so um, I guess the most popular would would have been obviously the 5-2 diet that um, – Dr. Michael Michael Mosley has investigated Mm. by his own purpose uh, with that documentary. I think it was 2012. I think it came Mm. out um, where where he went to actually interview um, different scientists who research in the field of uh, calorie restriction, which means putting animals on um, a restriction of 
a certain amount of energy that compared to what they would need and then see what happens and also looking at the clinical aspects. So what came out of that is that there is a definite benefit of reducing, basically putting the body under mild stress. So a calorie yeah. restriction is perceived as a stress. Yeah. Uh, and then as a result, so, you, you know, in same principle of the hormesis theory where we put a little bit of stress and that induces the, um, or activates all the genes that are about resilience, uh, about defense, about mm. detoxification and so on. And um, so the, the calorie restriction on optimal nutrition, the, the cronies, so that's a movement that exists uh, worldwide where people... Uh, willingly, I mean by choice, not just through a period of three weeks or anything, but like as a lifestyle, reduce anything between 25 to 40% of their estimated energy requirement uh, based on, you know, weight, physical activity, basically anthropometrics that we, we use to estimate energy requirement. And they do that uh, as a lifestyle. Do they do that all the time or they do that intermittently yes. or do they do that at certain no, no. parts? So, so that, that, that is on a permanent basis. So the, oh, the right. calorie restriction on, but, but the key thing here is calorie restriction on optimal nutrition. So they don't... Yes. Um, they don't have to just have chocolate bars <laughs> through the yeah. day. Um, <laughs> it's about having optimal nutrition in terms of micronutrients. Yeah. And, um, and so they do that. And so the, the, the aim here is to increase what we would call health span mm. and potentially as well lifespan because that's what's been observed in the mice models of calorie restriction, right? right? So, okay, but that is coming with benefits, but we don't have really those evidence in terms of the lifespan of a human being because we don't have those studies and we can't conduct those studies. However, no. if there is some um, studies reporting on um, biologic, uh, you know, biological age, uh, similar people, but those who uh, calorie restrict as a lifestyle versus those who just eat, you know, normally. And so comparing, you know, individuals at 45, 55, 75, and, and looking at the actual physiological age and showing that there is, there appears to be um, uh, definitely health benefits in of calorie restriction in that sense. So what are they looking for when they're looking for the, that benefit? Are they looking at metabolic factors? Are they looking at... Yes, so um, me metabolic factors such as... Um, so the typical thing, the typical kind of disease that would develop over time when we have, you know, an ab abundant um, diet of all sorts with gradually more sedentary lifestyle is things like uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, for example. Yes. Which actually is called, I just realized now, it's called muffled metabolic. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. Metabolic yes. fatty liver disease. Yeah. Um, so, for example, this, or um, in that same line of thought, the body composition, so mm. composition of fat mass versus lean body mass. Uh, things like balance, you know, the, the test that uh, on one foot balance. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, closed eyes and so on. Uh, mm. Reflex, reflex yep. uh, response, and you know, like a speed of of reflex. So this kind of uh, general, what we would attribute, what we attribute to normal aging. So the aging mm. effect, normal aging affects those function. And so comparing that with calorie restriction uh, practitioners. There seem to be a maintenance of sort of more youthful um, metabolic markers of that sense. Now, with this, though, the, the big discussion is, you know, is it suitable for everybody? Is it a sustainable way of living? So, yes, in certain environments it's doable, but in others it's not so practical to mm. do that. Um, and then is it suitable for everybody? So <laughs> there is evidence that it is, you know, that... It's very, again, that thin line to go towards um, uh, eating disorder behaviors, you know. That, that's not, that, that has brought a bit concern, shall we say. And so this is yeah. how then looking at the benefit of those restrictions but doing it in an intermittent way mm. um, started to, to, to come up as a, as a potential. So, and also I must say, I think the intermittent fasting um, research has been also motivated by the observation of the, 
you know, uh, shift workers who who do intermittent, but but in the other way around. Yeah. And um, because when if they work at night time, the food supply is not maybe the same, so they tend then to go also for other types of. Um, macronutrient distribution and types of food, which then associates or brings association with metabolic dysregulation later on. Mm. But that that observation of that um, shift work, which completely puts up everything upside down, was another um, source of information saying that perhaps that calorie restriction, and as in, in an intermittent way, could be useful. So now you've got the... The, I mean, there's different, again, lots of different wording, like you said, um, from the popular press and some different wording for it. But you could call that periodic fasting, where you, mm-hmm. within a seven-day window, where you've got either two consecutive or, or distributed days of fasting. And yep. it doesn't mean that it needs to be zero intake. It can be just... Um, you know, like a certain percentage, or maybe uh, 20, up to twenty-five, zero to twenty-five percent of usual intake. Michael Mosley's, um, you know, advice is to have five hundred yes. calories for women and yes. six hundred yeah. for for men. So that's yeah. around probably that's, uh, twenty-five. 20, that would just, be twenty-five yeah. percent. Yeah, twenty-five percent. Mm. Um, then there would be. Then there is what we will call the time restricted eating, or TRE, yes. or, or time restricted feeding, and so this would be within. Um, a 24-hour cycle where we've got a feeding window, anything between you know eight to ten hours, perhaps, or yep. depending. You can do it more or less strict, and then the rest is is uh, fasting, um, as in proper, fully fasting. Then, so you're fasting for 14 to 16 hours. Is that around? Is yeah, it- yeah. So some people push it even further, but that is again, why, why does one do that, and what are the, you know, what's behind yeah. them? But, but, but I mean, that I would be about the the eight to ten. So with this, this time restricted feeding comes in, brings in that chronobiology aspect of it, that it is better to feed during the day or during the the waking hours, like even daylight signaling, where because of all this internal regulation um, through the, the clock genes that, um, you know, about the chronobiology, it dictating yeah. when things happen. So when is there upregulating of genes, when there is downregulation of, of genes expression. And so to feed at the time when we are more likely to, to express the genes, for example, to um, to produce enzymes in digestion, for example, then it obviously makes sense to have that during the day as opposed to yeah. in the middle of the night. That's and so fascinating, so, that chronobiology. I love that term, yeah. you know, they're having that yes. circadian kind of regulation. It makes so much sense to do that. Is, uh, the, the translation of that is then to to go into chrononutrition, they call it even now. That's very... Uh, popular term but but I mean well, I know that when I studied um, Vietnamese medicine so it's like Chinese yeah. medicine but from Vietnam you know they would often talk about various different organs of the day having their kind of ideal time you know with the gut and the liver you That's know right. almost being switched on overnight around that kind of That's midnight to, to 3 a.m. so mm-hmm. they you know this this idea of kind of chrononutrition or or chronobiology is obviously mm-hmm. the ancients or the traditional practitioners have known about this for a long time yes which is which mm. is really interesting and and this is why i think this is why i, I sort of sh- i share the interest in that uh, field as well as with you for, from a dietitian point of view to study all the different um, nutrition or diet therapies around the world from different uh, backgrounds to to then understand why do they uh Say that that we should have a very light meal at night time, more eating during mm. the day, and so on. You know all these things, and there is not necessarily a biochemical explanation because the knowledge was not uh, on that level at that That's time. Right. But there was some intuitive knowledge, definitely. And and fasting comes in, into that. That it is um, even animals like to to fast when they're not feeling well or when yeah. uh, you know. So there is there is this element where. Um, why should we have why should we have a feeding regimen that is um dictated by cultural habits or by yeah. um the the timing of the day oh it's 12 o'clock i need to eat no it's not that it should be yeah. um, you know uh, i'm hungry i need to eat and that's it but anyway so then we're talking about also um so we had time restricted feeding which is the time period thing um then we had the periodic fasting which could be those 
um, you know, two days over a seven-day window, a yeah. seven-day yeah window, two days either consecutively or alternating. You could have the alternating alternate day fasting, which is so ADF is a short for that. So we're yeah. talking one day on, one day off, one day off, but two all all the time. And mm. it, that is more commonly done just by reducing the calorie intake yeah. on the fasting. So is day. that down to is that down to sort of that 500, 600, or are they doing more yes, like uh, yeah, the eight hundred fasting? For, for, from the literature, I have it's mm. yeah from zero to 20, up to twenty five percent of calorie right. uh, intake. Or yeah. something. and then there would be those long term fasting, which is um, so as you know when people go well when and that would be under medical supervision where there is a much longer window of, of so they fasting. might go for like five days or seven yes. or even yeah. longer yeah. than that. So evidence, there is little evidence on that. Right. So we're including all of the nutrients and and, um, we're sort of taking away the calories but making sure that the nutrients and micronutrients are all catered for. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well, with a long, that's why I say under the long term fasting, it would need to be under medical. Nu- I mean, it's hard yeah. to talk about it in terms of evidence because I can, I, I can send you, um, uh, you know, literature and even documentaries which uh, talk about those. Um, we call them the health sanitarium. I think in Germany and in mm. Russia, where they practice the the long. Fasting, so this is just water fasting, like purely yeah. water fasting. So we're talking up to three, four weeks, you know, but wow. under medical um, supervision, and they're getting vitamin mm. uh, supply as well and mineral supply, yeah. and that is to address things like, um, you know, arthritic um, conditions, uh, yeah. even diabetes, right. and so on. But, but we're talking that would be more. I, I put That'd this be under more disease therapy. Focused. Yes, therapy, yeah. yeah, and therapy yeah. definitely. Then we need to to mention also, in the intention of making all this more palatable, if I can say, um, yeah. more um, more something that people are, are likely to take on as a health habit uh, for for again uh, long term. So we're talking about the health span, extending that duration of life where we are healthy there is all these different protocols that come that have flourished and 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 some of uh, some of them are more or less uh, well founded but i need to cite the the um calorie sorry it's called the fasting mimicking diet uh from the research group from valter longo in ucla Mm. and so so Walter Longo is one of the, so he's um, researching in the field of gerontology, which is, uh, you know, understanding the aging process and how can we uh, address that early on so it doesn't get to the geriatric state. And so he, he, he studied a long time ago with animals and even looking at the benefit of fasting in conjunction of uh, cancer therapy, but that mm-hmm. is another topic. We can talk about it uh, differently. So talking about the this as being an adjuvant to, you know, during chemotherapy, but it's a different field. But anyway, mm-hmm. so he researched that a lot. And then um, he also looked at more the metabolic markers such as uh, insulin growth factor 1, so IGF-1, and um, what is what are the IGF-1 levels, how they are associated with health or disease. And noticing that with fasting, we are able to lower those IGF-1 levels. Mm. Um, now, I, again, I need to put this into, it's all cautionary here because uh, IGF-1 levels are very important at certain time of life and they're perhaps not as important later on in life mm. is the, so, the system because it's a growth factor, right? So right. Um, w- when we are young, we want it plenty yes. but, um, <laughs> in growing. Because it works, but, hand, but in, like, it works hand in hand with, with growth hormone, Yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, so yeah. it's great when we're growing, but we don't want so much when we grow older because we're not growing so much that's so going to grow things that we don't want to grow, like exactly. something like cancer. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. In, but, but, uh, but at the same time, I was just in preparation of today, I was reading um, a review about just actually from that group, um, recent, I think published this year, uh, to looking at what are the optimal level of IGF-1, and it, it seems it's a bit like one of those J curve. Um, but, yeah, you know, that that's right. And so, too little is not good as well. Mm. Even even for for elder, older people, yeah. it's not good to have too little. So but you want it in that sweet spot. It, it, 
It's about modify. Yeah, it's about modulating that that mm-hmm. does. And so dietary factors are involved um, in IGF one production. For example, yeah. we know that um, um, high insulin or elevated insulin levels in the blood will uh, drive the production of IGF one in the liver. So why do we have high insulin? Well, we would get raised insulin when we consume a lot of carbohydrate or you know excessive sugar all the time. I mean, insulin is super important, so we don't want to to bag insulin. Um, but it's about becoming maybe insulin resistant towards with aging. So that means we have a little bit of more elevated insulin. And the statistics and, on insulin resistance is is enormous. I mean, we've got yes. you know. Yeah. Huge percentages of the world population now yes. showing yeah. levels of insulin resistance. So, I mean, this is exactly. a really common issue where yeah. fasting may become like a, I guess, a um, a way, you know, to approach yeah. it that might suit people to, to modulate that. Yes, because that's right. So, because by modulating, so restoring normal insulin function then we don't have this, this signaling to produce more IGF-1. So that's one of the things. And also, uh, according to this group, it's, you know, the branch chain amino acids. So we've got yeah. um, we've got 20 amino acids that we use from our diet. Some are essential, some are non-essential. Non-essential meaning that the body can make them um, yes. in itself. But the essential have to come from the diet, and some of them are those branch chain amino acids. So there's three in particular, and they seem to to promote as well, more or less indirectly, the IGF-1 uh, production. So with this in mind, this group has has developed a protocol called the fasting mimicking diet, right. and so it's a it's a proprietary program, you know, with all sorts of little. Um, um, Secret ingredients and vitamins <laughs> and all this kind of thing. Yeah, um, yes. and it's but it's an interesting one. So it's it's a five day program uh, where you drop the energy intake from. So I'm talking calories here um, from a normal, you know, two and a half, three thousand for men or two thousand to two and a half for women. You're dropping to not excessively to thousand, and but there is a definite breakdown of macronutrients or so protein. Mm. Carbohydrate and fats, and then so that's for one day, and then for five days it drops a bit further to 900. So it's it's not excessive, um, yeah. but it's again breaking down the macronutrients in a specific way. And the aim here is to promote the. Um, uh, so I don't know if we want to talk about this now, but it's when one of the mediator of all the fasting benefits. One of them, I should say, is the the ketone body beta hydroxybutyrate. So, as we are switching from, um, if we start fasting like today, so we what we're going to do? We're going to first use uh, whatever carbohydrate store we have in the body, and that is in the yep. form of glycogen. So, liver glycogen will be broken down so it becomes sugar again, glucose, mm-hmm. which is then released into the bloodstream, and that's still sort of becomes the the first sort of source Port of energy of for for, yep. for cells. Now, why do we use glucose? Because it's a lot quickly uh, utilized and turned into fuel that cells can actually use, right? And then yep. uh, in the muscle, the muscle glycogen, so that doesn't contribute to blood glucose, but it's used locally for, for muscle. Now, once this is depleted, there is no more stores, then gradually, I mean, not just suddenly, but gradually, progressively, the body starts to break down fat stores a lot more. And so here, when we break break down our fat stores, um, what we end up having is not just a trinkling, uh, uh, sorry, that's what's, not, what's the word, uh, a little flow. We don't we don't get a, just a little flow a of gradual energy. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> no, not, <laughs> a, not gradual, but, but when we break down fatty acids, it come, it's a huge, it's like the hose is turned on really, really large. And so yeah. it's like we, we have the molecules to produce energy in much larger quantity. And so much larger than what we actually need. And so uh, there is a way to deal with this large amount of molecules, and that is to convert them to what we call ketone bodies. So some of it will be used to produce that energy that the cell uses. Some of it will be diverted to ketone bodies. So it's basically having an intermediate sort of um, packaging of this extra molecule. Now, these ketone bodies, so there's three of them, um, the one that circulates 
really that can be measured is beta hydroxybutyrate or BHB, and these um, the this beta hydroxybutyrate is then taken to uh, other tissues. So that conversion happens in the liver, right? So then it's taken to all sorts of tissues, so to muscle, to the heart, to the brain, and at these tissues or at these locations the uh, cells are able to use the ketone bodies to then produce that fuel that they need. Right. So, it, so in other words, it's actually a, a new fuel. And what is being um, now being studied so for the last five, six years, it's really, really apparent, is this beta-hydroxybutyrate, not only it is a fuel, but it is also what we call a signaling molecule, something mm-hmm. that is going to induce or activate pathways within the cell that uh, make the cell being able to to detoxify better, to uh, regenerate, to um, to dampen inflammatory pathways. Uh, and, and so there is a well, definite really, molecular benefit for yeah. that, you know. Yeah, it's really interesting to see that we've got this this ancient kind of practice, you know, that um, has yes. got some spiritual aspects and some, you know, very significant biological kind of aspects that, you know, we're now finding, I guess, the mechanism to explain that we've got these chemicals that we can make inside ourselves that actually activate pathways to help us detoxify, regenerate and de-inflame a cell. And when we look at the, you know, chronic disease crisis that we're in, let alone, you know, a viral crisis of a pandemic, but we've got another crisis which has been going on for 40 or 50 years, this chronic disease issue, and we now know that it's due to subclinical inflammation. We've now got a way to understand that by doing something like a um, intermittent fasting or periodic fasting or this fasting mm. mimicking diet mm. that we may have a way in which to ameliorate this subacute chronic That's inflammation it. that is creating yeah. chaos mm. really mm. across the world really it's yes, it's not just western worlds world. it's, it's across it's across the mm. world with westernized and highly processed um, mm. diets, which um, which is just absolutely, it's, a, it's like an inborn mechanism in a way. It's a, it's yeah. part of the, and and it's somehow, I mean, without crossing the line here, but it's almost giving some credit to, you know, those more traditional um, ways of looking at healing that says, oh. Fasting can make you feel better. Fasting can mm. heal yourself. So, so I mean, obviously, it's it's um it's a big statement, but but there may be some truth just because of, of that mechanism, for example. I think mm. there's a lot of wisdom to be learnt from traditional societies. I mean, we can we can talk about you know my, my views, I guess, of of their ability to kind of tune in and be present and and to really understand nuance is so much more than we can in this fast paced yes. world as yes. well. Yeah. The other mechanism that I always think is really, really interesting is the role that I've read about intermittent fasting and all time-restricted eating on really simple things like cholesterol and triglycerides. So, you know, do we have enough clinical evidence to sort of say, you know, we've all had in our, um, our clinics patients that, you know, we've tried... I guess, Mediterranean diet and, um, mm. you know, their cholesterol still remains high or the triglycerides still remain high or they're unable, I'm thinking of, of one patient in particular, you know, who we just couldn't get those triglycerides down and she found she was she was a Mediterranean woman so she was on a Mediterranean diet um, anyway. Mm-hmm. But when we started introducing fasting as an option for her, she did lose a significant amount of weight and her cholesterol did return to a much better uh, health level. So, yeah. have we got some research to 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 show that this is a particular impact on time restricted yeah. eating or periodic fasting, for example? <laughs> if anything, about you were talking about cholesterol. So, if anything, I, I was reading paper that is just about to get um, published, and so that was in a population in an older population. So, we're talking about um, like. Six, uh, 55 and over, shall we say, uh, but mainly um, the majority being over 65. And so in this particular case, what they were looking is is the extended fast. So 
the extended um, nightly fast, we're going to call it. So less than okay. 10 hours or 10 to 12 or more than 12 hours. And right. in this particular case, they found that um, it was not beneficial for their population because they, their HDL, so the high-density lipoprotein cholesterol, though the one that we would um, the good cholesterol. associate with good cholesterol, yes. So that was actually being lower in those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the potassium was, was much higher and the chloride was lower, I think, uh, from memory. So we now, when I see a study like this, I'm like, okay, uh, you know, this, uh, especially as a dietitian, I'm like, what are the confounding factors? And yeah. again, we need to remember that these studies and any studies uh, that are working under the um, you know, the gold standard of, of our evidence. So how we rate evidence is obviously the highest level of evidence is a systematic review of a randomized controlled trials where people are basically randomized to this or to that or yes. if we're doing an intervention or um, classified simply like in this particular case that would have been a cross-sectional sec- uh, study where there's no intervention. It's just looking at what, you know, a snapshot or on a given point. Um, and so we, we need to remember by doing that, we, we are completely neglecting individual response, right? So mm. if I go back to the randomized controlled trials, by randomizing randomly, we um, basically flick of a coin, we may have responders and non-responders in both groups. Um, so you put people on fasting and those alternating their fasting, for example, and you put the others on just not fasting and see what mm. happens. But what we completely neglecting here is the different genes, for example, in the apolipoprotein. So, you know, the, mm. the protein that is characteristic to each lipoprotein, so either HDL, yes. LDL, VDL, LDL. So there's now well-recognized different variants in those apolipoproteins that then make somebody, for example, so... Uh, it's another topic. We can have a conversation about this if you want to <laughs> on nutritional genomics and so on. But uh, I have in mind a, a very specific study where with a certain variant of the Apple A1, I think it was, that people were doing worse on a Mediterranean diet which was uh, high in monounsaturated fatty acids was actually yes. in exacerbating their metabolic syndrome. So so when we say Mediterranean diet, everybody, you know, should use extra virgin olive oil and it's just the best, etc. But if we've got that genetic um, sort of print underneath that is slightly variant, so it's not about Mm. bad or good, it's about having a different variant and it's common to have those variants, right? So it's about understanding... um, well, maybe that's not the best for me. It's better, maybe something else. Uh, I need to. I'm not suggesting they should go for butter, but you know, it's maybe not as much mufa monounsaturated yeah. fatty acids, perhaps less. So I think so, Volta Longo was yeah. talking about that when he was sort of saying, like, you know, we just simply don't have the the breadth of research to yeah, say that you know, everybody yeah. should fast or or yeah, that, yeah. you know, fasting for 12 hours is exactly what we need to do or no, yeah, 16 absolutely. hours is exactly the one. And we're probably never going to get that because of just the way that our research says, like some people it definitely suits, you know, you've got these anecdotal 103-year-olds that says, yes, I've been fasting intermittently for the last 60 yes. years and I'm so well and so that's exactly what you know, everybody should be doing it, but everybody yeah. doesn't necessarily respond in the same no, way. No, not in the same way. And um, so, and, and I think that really goes well with, uh, so the, the study I was citing before, the IGF-1, looking at that, you know, what is a good dose. So I think that was from the uh, Longo group. And I think they came up with something like a between 120, what is it? Is it nanogram per mil? Is it to 160? That was, you know, where there was the best um, association with health and less all-cause mortality. But too, too, too little and too high was no good for. So, yeah. if we look at that, if that is uh, describing a spectrum of effect on many, many different, you know, it was a huge uh, study with. They were, well, it was a meta-analysis. I should rephrase, where they looked at. Um, yeah, 19 different studies, so a very, very large. And looking at 
all-cause mortality and correlating that with the IGF-1 levels. And so here we go, 30,000 uh, individuals. And so it could be that that um, J-curve or that window where it's the optimal, even 120 to 160 nanogram per mil is, is, is still, a, a, you know, quite a range. So it could be that the... Um, the response is again individual and depends on that genetic makeup to start with. Yeah, and uh, you know you talk, we talk about personalized nutrition, so that's really the uh, that's been going on for the last ten years. Our personalized nutrition is the future of nutrition, and so on. But when you uh, that supposes that we are able in clinical practice to not just test for five or six genes like some um, you know some uh, um, industry companies offer us like those, you know, let's test yeah. your gene and they give you like 10 or 15 maximum and things like to have variant mm. on the, on, on the enzyme that metabolizes coffee, for example. But, but that is not enough to give proper prescription for, for dietary intake. You don't just do on 10 to 15 genes. You need to do mm. it on much, much larger. And then you need, we need to understand what is the gene to gene interactions as well mm. in the variant, gene-to-gene variant interactions. And on top of it, if you want to make it more confusing, and we have to now because we we know the knowledge about the, the role of the microbiota. So we, we need to bring that layer as well because our microbiota profile tend to, we know uh, in terms of carbohydrate, for example, make us respond differently to, to the amount of carbohydrate we're consuming and the type of carbohydrate. So it used to be you know, low GI, high GI, and that's the best way to monitor your blood sugar level. But mm. the Israelian study, which I'm sure you're aware of, the, where they monitored people, a large population, they monitored with, you know, those um, every five minutes blood glucose monitor attached to, right. you know, yeah. And then getting them to, to so monitor everything, um, poo samples and activity, sleep pattern and so on, and and get them to, to eat all sorts of different foods. And where we thought, where you would think that they would have a low glycemic response, some had a high glycemic response and vice yeah. versa. And yeah. so it throws out of the window all those one-size-fits-all kind of recommendations that we, we come it across. Does. So, so does it mean we can't do anything? I because mm. until we've got this technology to be able to do one blood test and we know everything, it's going to be a while, a while right? And yeah. until all clinicians are trained for that as well, it will be a while. Does it mean that we should do nothing in between? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that we can try to go for trial and error. And I mean, practicing fasting in those circumstances, like alternating day or time-restricted eating, for example, that is not going to cause harm to the person, right? Yeah. So the evidence is there now. It doesn't, the, the, the fear was, for example, that it was going to re- reduce muscle mass, mm-hmm. uh, not just fat mass, and the evidence is now coming. No, it's fine. Muscle mass actually yeah. gets protected for some reasons when we do it this way. Not when you're doing 15 days of fasting. I'm talking about yeah. the alternate. Huh? So um, there is also... The evidence coming through that people thought, oh, well, as soon as you can eat all what you want the next day, people are going to binge. And no, the evidence is actually that people naturally tend to consume less um, on their normal eating day. Uh, mm. Not because they're trying to, because there's no restriction, but just naturally they tend to to do that. Surely this would shift our um, our appetite genes, you know, our leptin and yes, our ghrelin. Yes, as well. Yes, you know, yes. as well. I mean, we're talking about how it shifts insulin and insulin-like growth factor. I mean, it's going to, yes. you know, those flow-on effects of of sort of appetite suppression and satiety yes. and yep. and even the mental aspects that we we well, talk about the mental in, aspect is a key one indeed. Yeah. yeah. So we we know, for example, again that that ketone body, beta-hydroxybutyrate, has yes. an suppressing effect. So that's right. another one. And and um and, and so the mental effect of knowing that, oh, I just need to, you know, try this diet really, you know, this extremely restriction for just for three weeks and less until I lose my five kilogram and then I'll yeah. be fine. Well, there's none of that. It's And I think that is the, the biggest um, 
breakthrough here when we're talking about weight loss and weight management is to to say, hey, there is a way of eating and behaving with food that is very different to what we've been taught so far. And um, the thing about we must eat three times a day because, uh, you know, breakfast is the most important. Well, no, not for everybody. For everybody, it will be a lot easier to skip breakfast Mm. and to extend that fast until midday. And then to to and knowing that this is okay to do so, and then I'm just eating until eight o'clock, and then I won't be eating anymore, and I know that tomorrow I can eat again. So that 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 because you know at the end of the day, the any weight loss program can potentially make you lose weight. It's, it's doable, right? But mm. but the problem is it's not about the, the big deal is not about losing the weight. The big deal is to then maintain that weight loss over time and and be a healthy individual um, so that you have sufficient energy to, you know, build, I mean, be active, build muscle mass and so on. So uh, in, for in for a number of people, they love that pattern because it's, it's – um, it's not as daunting and knowing as knowing that for the next six months I'm just going to have yeah. this really ridiculous amount of food every day, uh, small amounts, and when I go out it's a problem and all this kind of thing. Well, here there's a lot of flexibility, you know. You can just match it according to the to the schedule. Yeah, that's as well. right. And you can change your days as well. You know, I wanted to really yeah. kind of hone in. There's two other aspects of the fasting diet that I thought, you know, through our conversation prior to the one we're having today was super fascinating and that is the effect on immunity you know so there's a lot of research about fasting and the health of the white blood cells I know you're particularly interested in this tell us a little bit about how fasting impacts immunity okay so so this is also from the Walter Longo group actually when they did it in their animal studies um and then they also um well, they've noticed it in the animal studies and then they tested it in humans uh, as a proof of concept through their fasting mimicking diet. So it's good because I'll bring back this in because I, I don't think I've explained that diet very well. But anyway, so what they've noticed is that um, through in the mass models, so through the practice of fasting, that a certain amount, so it was 30% of the white blood cells were being destroyed in the process, so deprived and of, of well, not having substrate, being really under under this um, situation of starvation. So that was inducing those genes of autophagy. Uh, autophagy being meaning that uh, it's the cell cleaning itself, so activating, sorry, expressing enzymes that uh, basically eat away all the old organelles, but also mm. promoting apoptosis for cells that are too old or too not well um, functioning or diseased. And that upon reseeding through the uh, stem cells, the um, all those white blood cells were basically, or the production of white blood cells were upregulated and then to replace the ones that have been, that died. And through that principle, the hypothesis was that we know that through the aging process, the autoimmune system becomes less functional in disease, you know, uh, how we see sometimes autoimmune disease appearing in older mm. age and so on. And so that the, the hypothesis was if we can through um, a regular those regular fasting periods, through a lifetime, we're actually renewing our immune system on a regular basis because we, we're allowing for the old to, to die out and then for for promoting the um, upregulation of of new uh, white blood cells. It's almost um, similar to that beta-hydroxybutyrate, like, you know, it activates those pathways for sort of detoxification and regeneration, you know, and and almost is like working on that that regulation of the inflammatory pathways, you know, being our immune system as well. It's just fascinating that different different kind of um, different mechanisms but ultimately the same sort of simplicity of like okay well we need to clean out here just like we could clean out our cupboards and clean out our houses from time to time you know from time to time yeah Mm. and 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 so so that um uh, that autophagy uh, pathway so autophagy being the process of cleaning the cell and so yes upregulating detoxification enzymes um, upregulating enzyme that basically digest all the old organelles in the cell. So this process is um, 
upregulated by beta hydroxybutyrate. So th- th- you need the presence of those uh, of the ketone body for that. And so then, uh, how do you produce a ketone body? Well, it is many ways. To, you basically need to utilize fat stores as mm. a source of energy. Actually, I should rephrase that. Um, ketone bodies are produced when fat is a principal source of energy. So whether it be your uh, the, uh, our own fat stores through energy restriction, we end up having to use our fat stores, like I explained before, albeit through a diet where um, there's not as much carbohydrate, but more of the fat. So this mm. is how... Um, uh, in that particular fasting mimicking diet, it's not uh, completely low carbohydrate like a ketogenic diet. It's just more reduced carbohydrate, but a bit more fat proportionally, right? And and so, and, but it's also just a parenthesis. It's also how the ketogenic diet um, aims to to explain certain benefits. Or, for example, all those supplements, you know, those MCT oil, so medium chain yeah. triglyceride. So the idea with medium chain triglycerides is that they are medium chain. So they're only up to like between 6 to 12 carbon long as opposed to 18, 20, 24. And so they, upon um, intake, so upon absorption in the intestinal tract, they're not taking – normally fat is transported after absorption is transported through the lymphatic system, through chylomicrons. But medium, short chain and medium chain fatty acids are actually entering the bloodstream straight away in the portal vein, bound to albumin, taken straight away to the liver, and so being basically metabolized much more quicker. And so, mm. if we consume these medium chain triglycerides, you know, as in, I mean, you've got to handle it to start with because it's not very digestible. But if people, when they take it as a supplement, the aim is to produce the ketone bodies because the liver is going to metabolize it. And if we consume uh, quite a fair bit of it, some of it will be directed to produce those ketone bodies. So Mm. anyway, back to the fasting mimicking diet. So what they did then, they tested that in humans um, to see whether they would also notice the benefits um, on those white blood cells. So so the fasting mimicking diet, like I explained before, it's like a a five-day protocol. And yes. the idea is to do it for five days, then have one month normal eating, another five days, one month normal eating, and another five days. So do it three times, um, and they recommend three times once a year, you know, in that kind of pattern. So obviously glucose um, was regulated, ketone bodies, um, IGF-1 was decreased after the I'm looking at the thing here. Yeah, after the third cycle, even was very low. So they were measuring after each cycle of five days. And then the last um, measure was done after the end of the one month eating normally, right? So five days, one month full normal eating, five days, one month normal eating, five days, and then normal eating. And they were taking their last measurements through that last month. So, in other words, when people were back to normal. Yeah, back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. And so the IGF-1 was still lower than baseline. The IGF-1 binding protein was um, a little bit upregulated. So the binding protein is the one that holds onto IGF-1. So IGF-1 cannot have the that human, I mean, that growth hormone effect because it stays bound to the protein in the in the blood. Um, and then in looking at all sorts of um, body fat, body composition, and so on, and CRP, so as a marker of inflammation, CRP was significantly decreased even on that very mm. last uh, after one month. And um, and we and then so then it was mes- uh, um the the special cells who are there used as, um, you know, stem cells as being then used for. So whether they're being used specifically for the white blood cells is not specified here, but that was that is what they use as a surrogate marker to show that. And so right. that was upregulated clearly. We, we can see that after. Mm. So in after the second cycle and then still after one month of um, yeah. Uh, yeah, eating normal. Yeah. There's, I mean, you know, it, even just through this this brief conversation, you know, to to realise that there is some significant changes 
in your underlying biochemistry by doing, you know, whether it's time-restricted eating, intermittent fasting, um, the fasting-mimicking diet, those kind of interventions seem seemingly having some significant biochemistry, long-lasting effects on yep. things like yep. inflammation, um, immune cell detoxification, regeneration, um, you know, changing the way that our hormones work, changing our signalling. So really some fascinating areas of, of research. I mean, I don't think yet we know the fully long-term impacts on longevity, but it seems that, you know, it, it does have a relationship in some ways, like even using things like body composition, balance, reflex response, you know, mm. um, issues like fatty liver disease, etc. And to keep in mind that the, the ultimate studies that could demonstrate that, they're, they're not doable from a human point of view because we're, we're mm. not rats and we can't be under control. And there's so many other factors that influence yeah, um, that's right. our long-term health anyway. However, what you just mentioned here is is we, we um, these molecule molecules that are responding to fasting, so molecules in those genes and those yeah. those transcription factors that are responding, that are being activated or suppressed, all these kind of pathways, uh, that they are used as surrogate uh, markers. So we are mm. then inferring that if the inflammasome is suppressed, so the NLRP3 is, is suppressed through beta-hydroxybutyrate, then we know that uh, systemic inflammation is more going to be dampened. And, and mm. so in the long term, when we know that uh, systemic inflammation interferes with insulin signaling or will be damaging the endothelium of the cardiovascular system and so on. So we can infer that um, the the insulin resistance will not likely take place or less so mm. and that there is protection on the cardiovascular system. So it's all about inferring based on those uh, observations that are made. And um, yeah. is it good enough? Is it not good enough? Well, we don't know, but you're right. It's, we'll never know for sure, that's for sure. Veronique, mm. I just want to thank you so much for joining oh. us today to discuss all these facets of intermittent fasting. It just has what feels to me so much potential to affect our health in so many different ways from yes. gut health to metabolic health to immune mm. health to to mm. the effects on brain, the nervous system and the list goes on. And I think even practitioners who are well-versed in this area will have found some clinical pearls to implement in their practices after today's episode. Okay, well, so thank you so much. They, they, I, I don't know if we covered everything that we should have, but I'm happy to come back if necessary. <laughs> Uh, but you because much. you're right, it's. I mean, I just, I just pick up on the word um, gut health. So there is often a question: Oh, what happens to the gut microbiota when you fast? Yeah. Right? Because you you super. And um, so the evidence shows that actually the pathogenic bacteria. Um, there is a shift, shall we say, into the composition of the gut bacteria, where the pathogenic bacteria don't have the substrate, so they they don't handle that um, period of fasting, and so they tend to 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 be diminishing um, and then when we talk about intermittent fasting so the alternation whatever you mm. do whether it's hourly or week or whatever uh, or day per day it's the idea of fasting and feasting and so that mm. switch is um, I didn't say that but that switch is what has been really identified as being the beneficial aspect right. because um, compared to permanent calorie restriction which we talked about at the start mm. the the permanent calorie restriction doesn't have that switch okay it's permanent yeah. permanent permanent and there is the theory that there is some adaptation taking place and that the the body then uh, you know learns to do with what little it has and there is no uh, over long time does it really create the same benefit mm. as the alternating so when mm. we talk about um brain health and so on. In the animal data, there was really uh, brain-derived neurogrowth factor that is promoted also by uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate, by the way. Um, and so, so that means, you know, protecting a new, well, having new neurocell, but also protecting the neurons. And so that switch was much more, was not so much when it was constant calorie restriction, but a lot more when there was that fasting-feasting cycle. Yeah, so um, that's something to think about anyway. So yeah, here we go. <laughs> we can, but uh, it's a pleasure. And anytime, Michelle, if we want to talk again, uh, but, uh, I'm very happy. <laughs> Thanks everyone for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts, and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. 
I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse, and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.